0: You're listening to Canary Cry Radio.
1: And This is where it gets a little bit strange. A favorite theme of science fiction is the portal, an extraordinary opening in space or time that connects travelers to distant realms. A good portal is a shortcut, a guide, a door into the unknown. If only they actually existed. It turns out that they do. How do we explain it? Questions and questions and questions, but then it becomes fascinating, a real mystery of the first order.
2: We're gonna be talking about seeing into other
0: dimensions.
1: They're like portals. We live in the three-dimensional world, but despite that, we actually view things to be two-dimensional. Take a perfect sphere, for example. If you're looking at a sphere, it looks just like a regular two-dimensional circle. The only way that we can tell it's an actual sphere instead of a circle because of the hues of light down. So just like in a two-dimensional
0: world. You see, Einstein's equations break down at the instant of the Big Bang and the
1: center of a black hole. The two most interesting places in the universe are beyond our reach using Einstein's equations.
0: We need a higher theory, and that's where string theory comes in. String theory takes you before the Big Bang before Genesis itself.
3: See, there are many orbs in this room. I can see all these orbs, and orbs are obviously the first sign of a spirit manifestation. I'm going to be talking to you about how to see multi-dimensional entities. Some people call them ghosts, angels, demons, whatever uh, terminology you want to put to them.
1: I believe that all the signs are pointing to the soon resolution of some of these open questions. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, I was quoting from the Septuagint version of the Bible where in, in Isaiah 13 he talks about these gates opening, a few verses later he starts describing the blood moons. He says this is happening during a blood moon period of time. So yeah, everything, everything that we would be looking for in the scripture seems to be percolating in the world today.
3: Here's Basil and Gons.
0: Hey everybody, and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil.
3: And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number
0: 94. Nine four. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. In case anybody hasn't noticed yet, uh, for the past two or three episodes, I have really been... uh, really down, down on down on my weather is that a thing down in the
3: i don't know if that's a thing you just made it a thing
0: weather something about weather not being good um no but i've just been a little bit ill so i thought i'd just mention that since this is like going on three episodes now of like groggy kind of high on pharmaceuticals basil <laughs> just Pharmacia. kidding it's just ba- bad basil it's baby aspirin what it's baby aspirin, is okay, it is. Yeah. It's baby aspirin. Yeah, i don't like um,
3: any of those i i just don't like any any you medicine. don't like baby aspirin i don't like aspirin i never take headache medicine i don't take like i'll have throat <laughs> lozenges if i'm if i have a sore throat that's about it Pharmacia. <laughs> <laughs> Altering my consciousness with the cherry flavor okay,
0: okay <laughs> anyway. uh, anyways, so we got a call, which is um code word for email <laughs> from our good friend chris Putnam, who is uh has a new book with Tom Horn, and that's what we're here for, everybody
3: yeah, and he's actually been on coast to coast recently, and he you know he's been on Josh Peck's show. You know stealing our thunder. Yeah, he's been on Midnight the Car- Caravan to Midnight, whatever that that John B. Wells show. So he's been out there doing his thing. But he promised us that there would be exclusive material just for Canary Cry Radio.
0: Canary Cry exclusive. <laughs> you should. That's. That's should, a new thing. Yeah, well, no. That's, not that's really. That's new but Canary Cry exclusive <laughs> exclusive Your soundtrack. Exclusive theme song. Um okay, so there you go. Anything else
3: guns? Mm, nope. Other than um, we uh
0: I have a Facebook now.
3: That's right. I was going to say that. So. I have
0: a personal Facebook. So go to Facebook and search Basil B A S I L Rosewater. Which is my my given name. Your
3: real last name. That's
0: my real last name. So, go do that. Be my friend. I've been posting lots of limericks and other silly things. And also, uh, you know, all the stuff that you need to survive in the world. You know, just come <laughs> straight to my Facebook page and you'll get it.
3: Right. Cool. So, yeah. Look for Basil on Facebook. I have morphed the canary cry account into the gons account the
0: personal account not the fan page yeah yeah.
3: the personal the fan page look for the fan page canary cry radio go like it go like it definitely growing but what we're doing is um we're basically tag teaming now the page and so now there's two outlets so you won't miss it
0: yep it's awesome go do it facebook.com canary cry radio basil rosewater gons shimura and uh, other stuff. It's going to be great.
2: So anyway, okay, anyway, yeah, let's get Anything into the episode. Else? No, okay. no, nothing
3: else.
0: All right. All right. Go, go, go. Episode go. Episode go.
3: When investigating and comparing the world around us with the supernatural aspects found in the Bible, most would suggest that there isn't much overlap. But our guest today says otherwise. Chris Putnam is a bestselling author who co-authored Petros Romanus* and Exo-Vaticana. He's also got his own book called The Supernatural Worldview, which has brought new perspectives on how the Bible is consistent with the realms of the paranormal and supernatural that we see all around us. But he's here today to discuss his latest work, once again co-authored with Tom Horn, called On the Path of the Immortals, where he investigated the reality of other world entities that have been a major part of recorded human history, and how the Bible is consistent, if not more revealing, of the nature of such realities. We would like to welcome back to Canary Cry Radio, Chris Putnam. Chris, how you doing, buddy?
1: Hey, Guns and Basil, it's uh, great to be on the show with you. Um, It was a pleasure to meet you guys up in Ohio uh, last winter, and uh, it's good to be back.
3: Absolutely. You're one of the few that have seen Basil's, uh, you know, mug.
0: Oh, yeah. Boy. oh boy yeah. and not only that but he's calling into the show right now on his secret direct red phone canary cry phone line so that <laughs> right. will explain that <laughs> but anyways Chris thanks for calling in buddy what are we going to talk about today
1: well we got a new book out with co-written uh, with Tom Horn uh, called On the Path of the Immortals Ooh. Oh, that was my Bible software picking, I thought that was just like A theme song you were going to play for us That was, that was the Logos Bible software initiation song Yeah
0: I thought you had a whole like Theatrical performance planned over the phone Right Alright Okay, so your new book On the Road of the Immortals On the Path,
3: path. path. Oh, Come gosh. On
0: I mess it up every time <laughs> Well that's very fun. That that sounds did you guys do a lot of traveling? That's on the Well we path.
1: did some yeah we we actually did uh Tom took a research trip uh to the four corners uh area which is you know the intersection of Colorado and Arizona and what is it New Mexico and Utah uh, over there I think and uh to visit the uh, Navajo ruins around Chaco Canyon and look at some of the the petroglyphs. And he met with an Indian medicine man and got a lot of interesting information. And, of course, Tom's talked about that quite a bit, and that's all available uh, on the Internet now either, uh, different interviews. But um, it's in Chapter uh, 1 of the book, or 2, Chapter th- – no, it's actually Chapter 3, yeah. And um, – no, no, I think it's 2. And then my Chapter 3 is about my trip, and I, I went – to the northern part of the same area in Sedona, Arizona. And when I say northern, I mean it's really the northern edge of the Anasazi Indian uh, territories. You know, this is a mysterious Indian tribe that basically vanished off the face of the earth about a thousand years ago. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of competing theories about why they vanished, but uh, it is a genuine mystery where they went and why they disappeared so quickly. And, you know, we've talked about that in some of the other interviews. But in Sedona, I went there mainly because uh, we were covering this idea of um, extra dimensions and perhaps, you know, parallel realities, other realms. Uh, and um, that there's this idea that there are portals or doorways or gates to these other realms. Uh, the Sedona area is actually very famous for having one of these areas. So right. you know, after reading a lot of the literature I decided to travel there and it's also a really a well known area for UFOs and uh, the New Age movement and all kinds of weird psychic phenomena and stuff like that. So I spent some time there and um did some investigation and captured some video with some weird stuff and even got a photo of a UFO.
2: <laughs> Ooh
0: like uh like how like how 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 good is the photo? I mean,
1: well, it's, you know, I, I you can link to it at my website, dot com. I do have it posted there.
2: Um, okay. Here's
1: the deal. We, you know, if you look at my Facebook, there's a photo on my Facebook page of me standing with the night sky behind me and the stars are really bright. The way you take that photo is that I was standing there and my photographer, Chris Florio, Uh, You have to open the shutter of the camera and leave it open for 10 seconds. So he's like counting to 10 really slowly while I'm standing really still to get that photo. Well, While we were standing there in the desert, my wife was wandering around, taking photos with another Canon camera, trying to capture some of these orb things that we kept seeing. Well... In one of the photos, when we didn't even notice the UFO until we got back home like a week later. Mm. And uh, in one of the photos, way up in the distance, you can see a tree which gives you some perspective, which is really useful for a UFO photo because you can kind of get a perspective of what size it is. But way off in the distance, there's a really pointy triangle thing up in the sky. And uh, it doesn't look like a conventional airplane at all. It's very pointy, almost looks like an arrowhead or something, but wow. it's got little points of light. Now that's that's posted at supernaturalworldview.com. dot com, um, and uh, any of your listeners can go to www.supernaturalworldview.com dot com and just look for the triangle UFO or search for that, and it it'll pop right up. And I even have there's a couple threads on it, and where I have one that's an analysis where I had a few uh, people that are experienced in photography and Photoshop take a look at it, and, right. you know, and got some different opinions. But you know, I don't know what it is. That's why I call it a UFO. I don't you know, believe that it's aliens or anything necessarily, but, you know, UFO just means unidentified flying object. And it's certainly that it's unidentified and it's flying. So there you go. I don't know what it is, but a lot of people in Sedona do see all kinds of weird craft and there's all kinds of, you know, lore about a secret military base. So it could be some kind of top secret thing. I don't know. Yeah.
3: It looks to me like the TR3B which is thought to be a craft that they developed in the 70s or 80s. Uh, a, a, right. Not a full anti-gravity, but it, with some you know, anti-gravity generators, it's able to decrease the gravitational force on the craft by like 85 percent or something and then they use uh semi-conventional propulsion systems for the rest of you know the propulsion which
1: i've mentioned that craft in the book and when i you know in my analysis of this photo then the only thing is is i've seen some video of an alleged tr3b it's available on the internet and i'll share that with you later if you'd like but um this doesn't the lights on this thing do not look like what i saw you know If the video I saw was really a TR-3B, this doesn't look the same. Right. Now, and I speculated it could be something like the TR-3B, but it doesn't look exactly like the TR-3B I saw because... The tr 3 I saw had like three lights each on each point of the triangle. Right. This right. Has like this is lined with lights on the sides, and so I don't know that it's the same thing. It could be the same sort of thing, but I don't think it's exactly the same thing. Yeah,
3: maybe the same yeah. technologies that are employed different crafts. If you, uh, I right. know, I know you've run across the Ben Rich quotes uh, from right. a former uh, you know head of Skunk Works, and he talked about all these. You know, uh, we, you know, we can take ET home to the stars and all these, you know, uh, kind right. of over the top quotes. So, um,
2: well, the,
1: bit, the main one was, How do flying saucers work? And he said, Well, do you know how ESP works? And then the answer was, Well, that's how UFOs work. Right. right.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it, it tells me that they're looking at something that is related to human consciousness, apparently.
0: That's fascinating.
1: So, it is, yeah. especially in You know, when you look at physics, and they, they've got this whole thing they call the, the problem of the observer. You know, is is it a wave or is it a particle when they're looking right. at light photons? You know, that and you know, apparently the observer, human consciousness, does affect physical reality in ways that we don't fully understand. Yeah.
0: So speaking of that, after you observed the UFO, where was your uh, next adventure off to? There with Mister Tom Horn.
1: You know, to, to, to just to kind of clarify that we didn't really see the UFO when it you know, when it was there. We saw it when we got home. But the main reason why I went there is this area called the Bradshaw Ranch, and it's really named after a, a cowboy. He was actually one of the Marlboro men in the old commercials, but he didn't smoke, so he's, that's what explains why he lived so long. Um, <laughs> but Bob. Uh, <laughs> His name was Bob Bradshaw, and he was a you know Hollywood stunt man cowboy, and he had a ranch, you know, literally the Bradshaw Ranch out in the desert of Sedona. Um, it had a you know one of those um, knockout kind of uh, western towns where they used it for uh, a lot of movies. Even Elvis shot a movie out there, so it had like a mock western town, and it, it was a working cattle ranch. Well. In the 90s, his wife at the time, her name was Linda Bradshaw, or Linda Ball was her maiden name, um, wrote a book with a guy named Tom Dongo, who was a paranormal investigator, called Merging Dimensions, Mm -hmm. and the whole... The idea behind that book was that they really believed there was some kind of dimensional doorway out there on that ranch. And the reason why they thought that was they kept seeing all this weird stuff. Uh, one of the main things they see are what we call orbs, you know, these kind of circular... Floating balls uh, that people capture in photos. A lot of people think they're ghosts. Um, some people think they are angels. Some, you know, and then the, the leading debunker will say that they're all dust particles or lens flare in cameras. Right. Now, I had usually kind of fell in the debunking category before I went to Sedona. I, I thought that most of them were dust particles or, or lens flare. And a lot of them are, frankly, a lot of the stuff you see on the internet probably is that, because lens flare does cause it to look like orbs. So to eliminate that, I really wanted to, to use two photogra- two high-quality cameras, you know, cameras that are made well enough where they're not going to have lens flare. You know, most of your professional Canon cameras, you're not going to get that kind of internal. Uh, lens flare really happens when a camera has reflections in the inside of it. It's it's really from a cheaply made camera. Right. But, um if you have two cameras that capture the same orb, then it's not lens flare, and it's not likely a dust particle either because of the angles. If you have different angles on the thing, it's not going to reflect in the same way. Right. So it's not going to be a drop of moisture on the lens. It's not going to be just a, a standard dust particle. It's not going to be, you know, the lens flare. So I wanted to set up two different cameras and see if we caught them that way to eliminate this idea you know, that it's a camera phenomenon. And yeah, we did definitely catch these orbs on both cameras simultaneously. One running video, one running still photography. Uh, we caught them multiple times. In fact, the professional photographer I took, Chris Florio, actually saw an orb with his naked eye. Wow. We have a video of one that, you know, that seems to move kind of in an evasive way. It moves kind of towards us and then it like zigzags real fast and kind of goes the other way and just kind of fades into nothing that's actually posted at the on the path of the immortals facebook page So i I did start a facebook page for the book and that video is loaded there as well as one of the other ones it's more like a conventional just kind of a ball in the in the air thing and it's above uh i believe it's above my head and and so there's one video that has my wife in it and there's one that has me in it at both times You can sort of see this ball in the sky above our head, and it's not a star. And I can show you the sequence of photos, like we took still photos where, you know, you see one, two, three. It's not in one. It is in two. It's not in three. So it's not like a star or something like that above our head. There really was some kind of light ball flying around.
0: What do you suspect those are?
1: Well, you know, there's different opinions, like I said. And, you know, from the one that that seemed to move in an evasive way, that seems to... evidence of intelligence or or some kind of sentience Uh, you know it's not conclusive that's the case but it definitely seems possible and when you combine that with all the other testimony of people that have been out to that same place where i was who have seen these things i think it is rather compelling that there is something going on now I, i looked around a lot of people think they're ghosts a lot of people think they are spirits um L.A. Marzulli and his Watchers 1, you know, filmed these things flying around the East Eddie Ranch, which is Stephen Greer's little meditation compound. Um, Stephen Greer being the, the UFO guy who uh, has really combined the, the whole belief in aliens with Eastern meditation and Eastern spirituality, and, you know, thinks that they're coming here to help us in our spiritual evolution, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I would put a big, great deception label on that, along with L.A. and other people. But... um you know, in, in one of the photos that LA, took, in, in the video, it looked like the orb actually entered into somebody and just kind of went in and never came out. And, you know, he he speculated that might be some form of demonic influence or, you know, spirit possession. So people associate him with spirits, with demons, and then you have people who associate them with the holy angels. Uh, there's a lady, Joey Pinkney, Pinkney is her name, and um she has a website, if you you can Google Angel Orbs Miracle, it'll pop up. She has photos of these orbs flying all around worship services while, you know, people are worshiping God in, in different churches, and right. just like orbs flying everywhere. So my working theory is that if, you know, we're really dealing with an intelligent uh, entity with these things, that this is a form that spirits take you know when they're traveling about, and and I don't think that you can identify them necessarily because they all basically kind of look like light balls. So they could be angels, they could be demons, they could be perhaps spirits, you know, or, or humans or whatever. I don't know, but right. maybe in a spirit form, you know, that's the way that things move around. And I've I've had several uh, people, including some really high profile people who I can't mention their names contact me since this book has come out to show me orb photos. Now, some of them are really convincing. And, you know, one of the really high-profile high, high people is somebody that I've been on a show with who everybody would know who I'm talking about if I was able to say their name. But he showed me some photos that were absolutely stunning. Um, and I think these were definitely demonic entities in the orbs that he showed me. Uh, so my theory is that it's kind of a form that spirits can take. To travel around you know it 's kind of like they're you know they're, they're the little vehicle or whatever, however they, right. they seem to it 's a form of energy, perhaps something like that so that, that's that 's my working theory well it seems and like
2: are, go
3: ahead. Uh, I was just going to say it seems like you know if they are sort of higher dimensional entities of some sort to traverse into our realm, it would take on perhaps a light form, but yeah at the same time you know it 's really interesting Colossians two a couple times mentions elemental spirits of the world. And I, I, you know, I, I feel like the orbs have association with, you know, the the mythologies of fairies and you know, gnomes and stuff like that. Um, is is that something you've considered as well? When you say, you know, just a, just spirits in general.
1: Some some translations will mask that elementary principles of the world, right? And, you know, the word there is stoicheia, and that's a Greek term, and it's very clear from the ancient literature that Paul was talking about, you know, spiritual entities. He wasn't talking about principles of the world, you know, like in some kind of ambiguous um, sense. He was talking about real entities, and these were you know, like demonic spirits in, in a lot of the literature of his day. So that's, it's clear to me that that's what Paul meant. Now, you know, he was, this is the famous passage, don't let anyone take you captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit, according to the, you know, elemental spirits of the world. Now elementals, you know, have all kinds of representation in the occult literature. Um, and, you know, a lot of people would say that these are what some of the so-called aliens are. Um, and, you you know, I think that they probably would fit into this broader category of spirit beings. So, yeah, I think there definitely would be a connection there.
0: Also, with the orbs, it kind of reminds me of the 2D land that we talk about with... Um, Flatland. Flatland, right. right, with Josh Peck, where these...
1: It, yeah, these I actually read about that in um, Exo-Vaticana, too. Um, right. yeah. The whole idea being, you know, if you were a... Two-dimensional stick figure and on a piece of paper, and that was your universe. It'd be really easy for a three-dimensional entity to manipulate your whole reality in in ways that you couldn't understand. Yeah, and I think that that offers a lot of explanatory scope for the sorts of behavior that we see with things like UFOs that seem to defy, you know, the known laws of physics by being able to take a right-hand turn. You know, at a thousand miles an hour, which would you know, the g forces would kill a human being. Right. Actually, you know, you can't do that. It would just destroy the craft. The physics don't even work. So, how do we explain that sort of stuff? Well, that is one of the leading explanations is that perhaps they are taking advantage of an extra dimensionality, and we can't really see the full movement that they're doing. And maybe they're they're absolutely leaving our our four dimensional space time and and coming back in. So, it only appears to us that it's a a ninety degree turn. You know, for them, maybe it's not. You know, it's this sort of analogy like you know, if you were that stick figure on that piece of paper universe, you know, and somebody stuck a pencil through it, what would you see? You'd see a little point. You'd see it get up to a certain size of a round ball. The round ball would stay there for a while, and then it would just vanish as the eraser popped through.
2: Right. You know,
1: and the whole time you'd have no idea that a pencil just went through your universe. <laughs>
0: Right. Absolutely. So, and 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 speaking with that, it, you said in Sonoma, did you go visit those, like, weird portal sites that they have set up?
1: Right. So the, I went to an area, you know, right outside the Bradshaw Ranch, where everyone has written about all this weird stuff. Linda Bradshaw, you know, claimed to have seen UFOs, orbs, um, Bigfoot, um, little beings, little strange beings running around. You know, just all kinds of weird stuff. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is that it's not just her. You know, if you start looking through the literature where people talk about these sort of areas, you get the same story every time. And uh, like the Skinwalker Ranch uh, that's famous from coast to coast, uh, I think, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, it's been publicized quite a bit. A lot of people probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Not yeah. You can Google that. But, you know, same kind of thing. UFOs, um, strange creatures, cryptids, you know, weird um, UFO, weird uh, alien-type beings, Bigfoot, you know, the same sort of story. Well, what I found even more fascinating is that, you know, so you have all these modern accounts of these portal areas where these weird creatures are there, and then if you look in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 13, in the Septuagint version, um, and 13 is talking about the destruction of Babylon and, and the day of the Lord. And it says, open the gates, you rulers, giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. Um, it sounds like you know, it's opening, God's saying, open the gates, here come the giants. So what are the gates they're talking about? Well, I think that's likely the same sort of portal thing that we're talking about. But the thing I found really fat, most fascinating is that at the end of that chapter, you know, it's talking about after this judgment that the only things that will be dwelling in Babylon will be satyrs, which are basically half-human, half-goat uh, beings, um, and monsters and uh, all kinds of, of strange cryptid Little strange beings, monsters, devils—it just depends on what translation you read. But it's really clear that these gate areas, you know, like in Isaiah 13, are also associated with weird beings, um, you know, demonic entities, giants—you know, the same sort of stuff that you see in the New Age literature and in the paranormal literature around these gate areas, strange creatures, um, UFOs. Um, And, yeah, I don't think that's an accident. I think there is some sort of underlying reality behind all of that.
3: Yeah, and it's really interesting, that chapter with Isaiah 13, because, you know, it mentions the mountain, which I know you've talked about the mountain and its correlation to gateways or portals, Um, but it also talks about uh, both the Lord's hosts, you know, coming for battle from the ends of heaven, which, you know, what's that mean? Does that mean all of space, all of the universe? You know, it's kind of an interesting sort of exercise of trying to consider what that means in terms of heaven. Is it just another dimension? But it all seems like it's coming to fruition. You know, it's the, the battle is all converging on Earth, so to speak, you know, so it's really a very telling chapter that people often, I don't think, really consider um, and I and I'm trying to find that piece. I think there's a word in here that talks about it, how the dead are stirred up or something like that. And that word in the Hebrew comes from that same word "anakim," uh, which means you know like death. So even that, you know, the connection there with the nephilim by itself, without even having the Septuagint translation. So uh, it's pretty interesting stuff there.
1: Absolutely, it, it really is. And you know, um, again, I, you know, I, I look at these 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 relationships, you know, between the sorts of things that we see described in these prophecies and then the sort of things that we see you know, going on in the world and the things the paranormal community is talking about. And the fact that, you know, they do seem to agree with one another, I think is, uh, is quite telling of the fact that there is something real going on. Um, you know, and the whole idea of portals, you know, that we've been discussing – is is really a, you know, one of the major topics in the book um, and the idea that these immortal beings, and that's just a term that I'm using for beings from this other realm who weren't created to die, and, and that's really what immortal means, um, that, that they have a, a beginning point, but they don't have an end point necessarily um, and I think it's a much more accurate and descriptive term than angel which is usually what people use. And that's just kind of a, a tradition that's developed. And, you know, in theology, they even call it, you know, the the um, angelology, you know, the study of angels. Well, you know, I just don't like it because angel is a job description. Uh, it means messenger. And the right. word angelos in the Greek New Testament can be a human or a divine being. It's not necessarily You know, a divine being. It could be a human being, it could be an angelos. Uh, In the Hebrew, it's malach, same word, messenger. But, you know, the seraphim that I was describing earlier, um, these plumed serpent deities uh, that, you know, are flying around the throne room of God in the beginning chapters of Isaiah, you know, it says that they have six six wings and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, Those same beings are described later in Isaiah as fiery flying serpents. And, um, you know, I think that that betrays the fact that they are serpentine, they are reptilian, but, you know, the holy ones fly around the throne room of God. And I think it's curious to me why translators of the Bible decide to transliterate the Hebrew as seraphim when they're talking about the throne room of God, but yet later in Isaiah, when they see the same exact Hebrew, seraphim, they translated it as fiery flying serpent. Why is that? Well... I, I think that they're uncomfortable with the notion that serpents are flying around the throne room of God. So they kind of right. mask that and they mask that in translation. They don't translate it when it's in the throne room. They just transliterate it and say seraphim. So no one really knows what they mean. But, you know, when you see it later in Isaiah, it's fiery flying serpent. Like it's scary. Well, I think they're probably scary in the throne room of God as well. Um, you know, but they just kind of mask that. I, I don't really appreciate it when, uh, translators, <laughs> you know, try to um, censor the Bible for me because they were afraid that it might scare me. Yeah, you know, I'd really like to know what it says rather right. than ha- having it being censored in translation. <laughs> I'm afraid that that's what's going on a lot of times with the term seraphim because they really are serpentine and they really do fly around the throne room of God. Yet, you know, I think that, you know, we see that there are fallen seraphim and Right, you know, Fer, 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 Seraphim who has rebelled against God. We know that some of the angels did that, um, and we certainly see that um, there are places in our theology that would allow for that. Psalm eighty-two is one of these famous psalms, and it's one you know, Doctor Heiser has talked quite a bit about about the divine council.
2: Yeah, you know, it
1: starts mm-hmm. out God is taking his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, little g. He holds judgment. How long are you going to judge unjustly? How, you know, it, it, God is basically condemning these little g-gods for mistreating the other nations. Um, this is kind of Heiser's um, paradigm that he calls, uh, I think, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Yeah. Um, and basically the idea that at the Tower of Babel, God didn't just confuse the languages. He actually disinherited the other 70 nations that we see in the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10. Now, you know, that being the case, you know he put the other nations under the authority of these little g-gods, and he took Israel as his own. And this makes a lot of sense of why God was so particular with the Israelites, because he really wanted them to stand out and be distinct amongst the nations. He wanted them to, to show, you know, that he was the one true God by the way they behaved, in opposition to these other nations who were under these other gods. Right. Now, in in that psalm, in psalm, uh, psalm 82, I think around verse 6 or 7, yes, yeah, verse 7, well, 6 and 7, I'll just read it. Let me look it up here. Okay, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. That's the ESV of that. Uh, Verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 82. So Mm -hmm. he's saying, you're gods, and, you know, you weren't designed to die, but because you've done this, you're going to die like men. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, some interpreters don't like the idea of little g-gods, so they, they try to turn those into... Um, the Israelites, uh, the, the leaders of, 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 of Israel. But that doesn't make any sense because what, how, well, why is it meaningful to tell a human that he's going to die like a man? Right. Uh, he, he's going to die like a man anyway. So how, right. how about even right. a judgment? That makes no sense at all. So they have to be divine beings who were designed not to die or that punishment doesn't even make sense. In, in Psalm 145, you see that God created them to live forever. Uh, it says the malach and the sabah, which is another Hebrew term, sabah. Is just, it, it really means a military term. But he's talking about God has created, you know, these beings that people typically call angels, but some of them are not messengers. They're, they're military. This is what the sabah is. And that's usually translated as hosts. The hosts, sabah. But that really is more of a military, militaristic uh, term in Hebrew. So you have the sabah, you have the malach, and they're created not to die. But because these fallen ones have mistreated the nations that they were in authority over, God has sent them to die like men. Now, do we see any evidence that there are, you know, fallen angel deities, um, fallen, you know, seraphim over other nations? Well, in in Chapter 4 of the book, I I really did... I I, I think I did probably one of the most thorough, thorough kind of encapsulations of this idea... That in Mesoamerica, you see the the people in the Incas in Peru, the the Aztecs and the Mayans, all worshiping what uh, plumed serpent deities, <laughs> beings that are reptilian with wings um, that are being worshipped as you know gods like Quetzalcoatl. Um, and, and what do they require? Well, it's interesting to me. They build pyramids just like the Egyptians, and then they require blood sacrifice to these uh, flying Plumed serpent deities. Now, I don't think that's an accident. You know, I think that what we're seeing there are these flying, uh, fiery serpents from Isaiah. These these plumed serpent deities are fallen seraphim or something related to the seraphim. Yeah, you know, I don't know that God has actually told us about everything that He created. Perhaps you know, we see the cherubim, we see the seraphim, and we see the 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 angels that appear to be human. Uh, but the cherubim and seraphim are definitely not human, um, looking necessarily. And, you know, they're scary and they're fierce and they're not something that you want to meet on a dark night in the woods. Um, <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, they are the sort of things that people would fall down and worship as deities, you know, in the Mesoamericas. And I think that's exactly what happened. That, these entities showed up and said you know I'm your god I'm quetzalcoatl I'm you know I'm you know worship me and and I think they did and then they offered human sacrifice to them. uh then you see the same sort of thing happened in Egypt they built pyramids they were worshiping snakes and, and they develop this whole pantheon, but yeah, I think at the core of it, there probably is an underlying reality that is one of these fallen angel type beings. And I just say the word fallen angel because that's something everyone understands. Again, fallen immortal would be more accurate, and that's why we use the term immortals in the book.
3: <laughs> right. And you know, just real quick, if we go back to Psalm 82. And that passage you uh, brought up, chapter or, uh, verse 6 and verse 7, you know, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. You know, one of right. the most compelling arguments for Jesus being Yahweh, you know, in the flesh, is John 10:34. And I've heard so many New Agers use this passage to justify that the Bible teaches that humans are gods. Um, but right. in reality, you know, Jesus answers and he's, this is where he's answering the Pharisees and Jesus answers, uh, or, you know, the Pharisees ask him, you know, for a good work, we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answers and says, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods, you know, and if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, you know, and the scripture can't be broken and et cetera, et cetera. But he quotes Psalm 82, which is really fascinating right. because right. he's pretty much saying, I'm the one that said that back in psalm 82 you know i'm the one that well, judges the gods
2: right
1: what well, he's saying you you already believe in other gods you know he's saying here's it is in your your own torah in your in your old testament your sadak that there are these other gods you know and i'm telling you i'm the son of god so why do you want to kill me you know you already have room for this in your theology right? that's what he's saying you know and that's it's funny that some you know of the apologists will quote that passage even john and try to say that that proves that they were ancient israelites how does that make any sense jesus <laughs> is claiming to be god you know he's not claiming to be a judge of the israelites he's claiming to be a god so it, it, it's not even coherent to use John ten as a way to refute that they're actually deities, right? Yeah,
3: yeah. So right. I I always like that, you know, just in terms of the the whole argument for you know, I guess the sons of God, you know, perspective, the divine council, if you will, with uh, Deuteronomy thirty two eight, and I think Doctor Heiser was the authority on that with uh, specifically with Deuteronomy thirty two eight, because if you go look it up, some of your translations will say according to the sons of Israel, but uh, I think Doctor right. Heiser does right. a good that, job.
1: That's nonsense. That's. That's called uh, demythologization, <laughs> demythologization is what that is. And Heiser does have a scholarly paper dealing with that passage in John 10 where he makes the the same argument I basically just gave, where it's not even coherent for, for Jesus to be saying, you know, you have already called these other humans God, so why can't you call me one? Because that would make Jesus no different than the Israelite judges, if that's the way you're going to interpret that. So obviously oh, right. he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God. He's going, look... You know, in your own psalm, you know, here are other deities. So why is it so you know, crazy for you to, to hear me say that I am the son of God? You know, so that's really what that's all about. Right. And that's the argument. It's only his argument only works if there really are other little g gods. Right. Now, <laughs> you
3: know. One of the areas that you really you know, and you've talked about this a little bit, but just looking at the Native American culture. Um, it 's very interesting to me that it 's only now that we 're starting to you know bridge that gap of sort of their cosmology and and some of their i guess theology even uh, and seeing the bridge or the connection points with biblical truths and it 's fascinating to me because it it takes sort of this understanding of like the divine council and all this stuff that you know has been uncovered in in more recent years to sort of get that connection with the Native American cultures and what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. You know, what else can, can you tell us about you know some of those cultures that you thought were in line, but obviously they kind of had it. A, you know, they they had a different perspective, a kind of a one eighty to you know the biblical view. But I mean, I, I don't fault them. They, if a, if a serpentine shining being came down and said, "I am your God," I mean, to a culture that doesn't know otherwise, uh, sure, you're you're our God. You're far superior to us you know, what do you want? And, and, you know, I guess there was human sacrifice involved and all kinds of stuff.
1: Right. Well, so the only Americans who were worshiping, you know, these feathered serpents or whatnot, uh, the the tribes are like the Olmec, the the Mixtec, the Zapotec, the Toltecs, the Aztecs. And, you know, the Olmec times are like, go way back to like 1400 BC. So you're talking about the same time the Israelites were entering the promised land. Um, Yeah, and these feathered serpents, you know, they're they're really depicted throughout North, Middle, South America. Um, the the Olmec or the Toltec culture, um, it's known as Teo uh, and it's displayed as a serpentine god on the sides of the pyramids. Uh it's a pyramid called the Temple of the Feathered Serpent, and I think we have a picture of that in the book. I don't know if I could pronounce it right. It's Teo Tehawakan, I don't know. But the archaeological record is pretty clear you yeah, know, that the cult of the serpent spread all across the new world. Um, and you have pyramids, you know, dedicated to Quetzalcoatl, whatnot, the Incas of Peru, the Aztecs of Mexico, the Mayans of Yucatan, they all worshiped very similar winged serpent gods. Um, the Incas called it, uh, the Amaru, um, the Aztecs, Quetzalcoatl, the Mayans, Culcan, uh, in the so the Inca mythology, the Amaru, is a huge, like, double-headed flying serpent that dwells underground and flies through all these tunnels, and Ooh. it goes into the netherworld, blah, blah, blah. Um, it, as a supernatural entity, you know, it, it's reptilian. It, it it was believed to navigate portals in the underworld. Um, it, it, it communicated with the dead and the living. Um, but the Amaru, interestingly... Um, when you look at, like, the leader of the tribe, the chief of the tribe, he was called Viracocha. Now, Viracocha was represented as a bearded man, um, but it's really interesting. Uh, Viracocha shows his, they had a thing called the hunak, Hunake, or a man-made double. It's like representing the living king. Um, he had some kind of symbol that represented him. What did he choose? A stone image of an amaru, so the Viracocha adopted the amaru as his man-made double. What does that mean? You know, I don't know exactly, but it seems that that the leader, uh, Viracocha, uh, they're, they're basically their human-looking god is somehow intimately related to the amaru. Uh, you see the same sorts of thing with Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec name. You know, of the same sort of feathered serpent deity. Um, you know, one of the main gods of Mexico and Central America, uh, the Aztec civilization, um, Quetzalcoatl, you know, just was ubiquitous in, in, in the literature down there. And, you know, every, a lot of people have heard that name. And, of course, the New Age community has really kind of brought Quetzalcoatl back as, uh, you know, this big, um, hope of the Mayan return, you know, the the, the the glorious new age that we're going to enter into after, basically, you know, they were saying 2012, if you listen to people like David Wilcock and whatnot, and that's the thing I find really fascinating, is you have this whole uh, huge hoopla about 2012 and the Mayan calendar, and the return of Quetzalcoatl and we're going to ascend, and all these glorious uh, promises and, and prophecies, and then nothing happened. But yet, David Wilcox still popular. How does that work exactly? I don't really understand that. Because um, he just spoke at, you know, the Contact in the Desert thing that it just had last week out in California. And apparently he's still really popular, but almost everything he said about five years ago turned out to be wrong. Right. And, you know, why is that? You know, in Christianity, we don't really do that. Like, I don't think Harold Camping has much of a following anymore. You know what I mean? Right. So it's like, um, why is it that David... Wilcock does. Uh, they just seem to be able to get away with it with impunity. Um, you know, making all kinds of, of predictions that don't come to pass. Right, um, right. According right. to them, Quasi Kudel should have been back by now. You know, but of course that didn't happen. Maybe,
3: so, maybe he's back hiding in the caves.
1: Yeah, maybe so. Or he's yeah, he's invisible and we just can't see him. Yeah, that's you know, the kind of thing that. You know, the, the Seventh-day Adventist and the Jehovah's Witnesses said about the, the investigative judgment because, you know, Jesus was supposed to return in the 1800s and, and of course he didn't, but some of them will say he actually did, but he's invisible and he's really judging the world right now. You just can't tell it. Uh, um, you know, it's just kind of absurd.
0: <laughs> he's but, very sneaky.
1: <laughs> it was very sneaky of him, wasn't it? It's funny how he said that when I return, the the whole sky will light up and no one on everyone on the earth will know it's me. Right. Uh, that's what he said. Don't be deceived. <laughs> when the son of man comes, you know you're not gonna you're not gonna be doubting it. Right. Um, but he so say the Incas, you know the same thing with Viracocha. Like I said, um, and the Mayas had the Kulkan thing as well, another feathered serpent. And the thing that the other thing that really bothers me about how how gullible New Agers are, you know, with this Quetzalcoatl thing, and, you know, they seem to be in love with this idea, but do they forget that the Aztecs, Mayans, and Incas all practiced human sacrifice? You know, do they forget that they offered human blood to these deities? Um, You know, and why is that something that you want to sign up for? Um, You know, I I don't think it's a good thing. It, It really does seem to relate, you know, to the, the same thing the Watcher angels were doing with the Nephilim and you know, Judd Burton's done a good job of attaching that to the, the practice of vampirism and uh, in his book uh, Interview with the Giant. So, you know, you get all kinds of evil things of eating human flesh associated with these things. So why is this something that New Ages think is gonna help us spiritually ascend? Yeah, I just don't see it. It seems to me that they're going to put us into slavery, and, right. you know, I think that's where that's heading. So, you know, I don't know if these deities are going to show back up, but, you know, I suspect they could. You know, I suspect, you know, when we get down to the, the day of the Lord, uh, the return of Christ, the, the great tribulation period, when I suspect things are going to get super weird, a lot weirder than anyone probably expects you know we see in the book of revelation with that fifth trumpet judgment judgment these scorpion tailed flying monstrosities with human hair and stuff flying around spigging people for six months um you know that's at the fifth trumpet job in Revelation, but you know it's not clear to me that everything is described. Maybe we'll have flying flying serpents flying around too, and we'll have giants and everything else that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah thirteen. I suspect it's going to get super weird, and all kinds of weird entities are going to pop up that people didn't even know existed.
0: Right now, I'm pretty interested in these portals that you keep talking about, and you said there was a, a tribe that disappeared or vanished.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, the Anastasi, yeah.
0: Did they so, get sucked up into some other dimension by a serpent being?
1: <laughs> who
2: is, uh, yeah, maybe something like that. <laughs> um,
1: so, Tom, this is a, this is more with Tom's research trip. He went and talked to a, a, a Navajo medicine man, uh, Dr. Mose, who did describe some of this stuff. So, the Anastasia is this tribe that, you know, just kind of vanished off the face of the earth. Well, the thing that's really weird is that, you know, the ancient people, you know, valued things like salt. Um, salt was something they used to to preserve their food um, and something they used to, to you know, cure meat and, and all kinds of things. It was just about as valuable as gold to them. Um, it was something they used to survive with. And when they look in the ruins of these cliff-dwelling Anasazi, they, they found that they left their tools. They left their salt, their bags of salt. They left things that, you know, if they were, Making a migration to somewhere else because of a drought or a lot of the other reasons that, you know, some scholars will give for where they went. They would have taken that stuff with them. The fact that it was left behind tells us that something a lot more drastic happened than a planned, you know, migration. Um, Well, we, there's bits of really weird evidence that's popped up. Um, There is evidence that some of these uh, Toltec uh, Indians who were known to be cannibals you know some of these people that were worshiping Quetzalcoatl and Kul Khan, um, that were also eating human flesh. It's it's there's some evidence that they came up and started doing raiding parties on the Anasazi, but they found human excrement. Okay, archaeologists found some petrified human poop. All right, now when they they cut that open, and they started investigating it. What did they find in it? They found human DNA. Uh, from a different human in the human poop, it's telling mm. us that they were eating humans, okay? So somebody that was there practicing cannibalism. So they also found some evidence that uh, the Anasazi, that some humans were just torn to shreds. I mean, literally, you know, torn to shreds, they found their remains, you know, splattered all over the place. Um, so when Tom started questioning Dr. Mose about, where did the Anastasi go? You know he first started giving him you know the typical story that most scholars will give about how they migrated or how they kind of morphed into the Hopi and the you know the Pueblo Indians and whatnot and some of that might be true. Some of them might have done that, and I think that there probably is a trace of them within the Hopi tribe, but you know, something else happened as well and, and Mose said, well. You know I shouldn't tell you this, <laughs> but I will, and it, it kind of went off in the story about how a reptilian entity came through a portal and started basically eating them and attacking them and they you oh. know they had to run yeah oh. and so this is this, this is right there in the Indian literature, and there's petroglyphs on the on the cave walls of you know a spiral which looks like the you know the, the portal the vortex portal, and right. then a huge reptilian entity standing next to the spiral, and then there's a, a six-toed footprint, which, you know, of course, in, in the Bible, we, we read about these giants that have six six fingers and six toes, and that appears in the book of Samuel and, and, and in the Chronicles as well. So, you know, it's, it seems to us that, you know, that there were giants there, there were reptilian entities that were attacking them. So I think something happened, you know, with the Anastasia that they caused them to either to run or, or that they were actually destroyed. So, you know, it, it, it seems to us that a lot of what we see described in the Bible with the, the Nephilim and, you know, the giant tribes who were in the promised land when the Israelites came uh, were also here in the Americas. So whatever the watchers were doing in uh, the Levant area around Israel, they seem to have been doing it over here in the Americas as well. we just don 't have very good written records of it, but a lot of these tribal you know stories that have been passed down through oral tradition do seem to preserve the same basic story you know about giants about you know, reptilian entities who were attacking the people, and then we see you know them worshiping these plumed serpents like they were doing in Egypt and stuff. So, it all does seem to 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 form a coherent picture that is consistent with a biblical worldview.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. That's cool that you guys got the chance to go on site there, Mister Adventure Team
1: <laughs> style. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's kind of a privilege to get to do that, and yeah, you know, I just wanna thank tom horn for uh for financing all that and you know that it was my privilege to, to get to, to do that work
3: yeah it's pretty cool now i have a question and i want to get into cern a little bit later but revelation sixteen thirteen talks about uh three unclean spirits that looked like frogs right. and do you think there's a connection there with some of the serpentine i mean frogs aren't exactly serpents but they're still reptiles right
0: Right, they are amphibians.
3: Gone. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah, that's yeah, that's why I have you, Basil. Come
1: on, amphibian reptile. What's the difference? Not really. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's 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 a little. You know, it's a little unclear. You know, when you're dealing with the Book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature, obviously sometimes these words are symbolic of other things, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're literal, and it's not. Perfectly clear, yeah, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, okay? So I don't think they're literally frogs, right? right. Because they're, they're coming out of the mouth of these guys, right? The beast would be, what, the Antichrist, right? The false mm. prophet would be his kind of his sidekick. And the dragon is the devil, right? Right. Um, and so these three unclean spirits are coming out of their mouths, so, what do they represent? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I suspect that these unclean spirits are just that, that they really are spirits. There's some kind of entity who is, um, you know, demons, you know, a demonic entity or a uh, fallen angel de- deity, a fallen immortal deity. And these are going to go out throughout the world. Influencing political leaders—it says kings, but you know, in our day, we would call these presidents, you know, prime ministers, what whatnot. Right, right. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, they probably do still call them a king, but you know, they're what are they doing? They're influencing these political leaders to prepare for the Battle of Armageddon. Basically, they're 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 kind of pushing them on to a world war, you know, or a war against God, really, is, yeah. is, is the way it really goes down. But, you know, whatever the meaning of that symbolic thing, um, I think it, you know, it is symbolizing something else, but I do think they really are spirit entities, you know, and they, they probably do have a reptilian or amphibious look to them. Um, but, you know, the coming world government and the Great Tribulation will be established by the power of Satan. It's pretty clear that that happens. Right. Um, so here, you know, we have Satan, the world ruler, the false prophet, uniting uh, in, in in one goal to incite the nations of the world to gather for the final world war. And the war is really a form of rebellion against you know, the world ruler, uh, the Antichrist. I think they're turning on him. But why should You know, the satanic forces let loose to destroy the world empire he just created. Well, the answer is probably related to uh, Satan knowing that the second coming of Christ is near. And he's going to gather all the military might of the world in the Holy Land, trying to prevent Jesus to return from the Mount of Olives. Um, And that's discussed in Zechariah chapter 14. And really interestingly, there you know it says that Jesus is going to basically open his mouth and their faces are going to melt off of their flesh <laughs> you know, it and you know it doesn 't sound like much of a battle; um, It just sounds like he says "Drop dead," and they basically melt right there um, that 's described in Zechariah fourteen pretty clearly um, and it's it 's not a uh, pretty picture for those people who are gathering to fight Jesus as he returns, so it seems to me that these unclean spirits are inciting these leaders, you know, to gather for this big Bible battle. Perhaps against the Antichrist at first, but really, the whole idea is Satan is using this as a means to try to prevent Jesus from returning because he knows that marks his judgment and his chaining into the bottomless pit for right. a thousand years.
3: Yeah, and it seems to correlate with um, you know some speculations that I've made, and I'm not the first one to make this, obviously, but that you know the the return of Christ. Will be seen from a worldly perspective as some sort of alien invasion. You know that that could be oh they, these belevo- uh, or a malevolent aliens are coming and and um you know maybe it's going to be framed in a way that's opposite. You know so uh, you know just some interesting stuff there. But I do want to get into CERN because I know that that's kind of a hot topic and and I've looked at CERN for uh, you know a few months here and you know what Plus
0: we've already been talking about portals. Yeah, so we're Might yeah as well, be-
3: we've been doing a lot of portal talk. <laughs> um, what, what, uh, what do you, what can you tell us about CERN, and um, you know, what how does it correlate with some of the research that you've done recently?
1: Well, you know, one of the first chapters that I wrote and on the path of the immortals is called the science of portals, and that's because you know Tom, put, you know, he put me he says, you know, I want you to 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 investigate this idea of portals to other dimensions and. And I'm like, really? You know, because, I mean, most of the literature on that, a lot of it's just nonsensical, new age kind of weird stuff. And, you know, you just, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to have to parse through all this crazy stuff. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, you think, I'll I'll think I'll start by just seeing what science says really is feasible. You know, so I I started investigating black holes and, you know, um, Einstein, Rosen, bridges, and... The, you know, all the stuff that you see in the movie Interstellar that came out last year. Um, You know, th- there really is some real science behind this stuff, and it, it's a legitimate topic in physics. Now, CERN is dealing with the really small. You know, where astrophysics is looking at things like black holes on a really big astronomical perspective. On the other end, CERN, we're talking about smaller than an atom. You can't see this stuff that they're doing there, but it's it kind of relates in a similar way in that they think that, you know they could open up a really small black hole uh, because they're colliding these particles at super high energies, um, and they actually—you know—this is the, the mouth of the own scientists there at CERN. that said things like, "We could tear, we could tear the space-time continuum, and create a black hole that could destroy the." I mean, they right. actually said that, you know, we could tear the space-time community and create a create a black hole, which would suck our whole universe into it, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, our, our whole, you know, our, our galaxy or whatever, our, right. our immediate surroundings. Um, you know, I don't think that they necessarily really believe that, but they, they think it's on the table enough to mention it. You know, it's not clear to me when they're being tongue-in-cheek and when they're not, and that's the problem. is right. They don't really make an effort to uh clarify any of that. They seem to enjoy scaring people. And yeah. you know, they put the Hindu god Shiva out uh, in front of the of the facility. Now when they did that, you know, Shiva it depends on which form of Hinduism you're looking at, but typically Shiva, some people you know, the way they frame to discern is Shiva is the creator. But a lot of people in Hinduism view Shiva as the destroyer of worlds. Um, and actually Shiva is both. Because in Indian cosmology, they believe in an eternal creation. It's always been here, but it's cyclical. It it it's destroyed and then it recreates. It destroyed and recreates. So they believe in this kind of cyclical version of time, where it's all in cycles, and you know, and it's always been created or destroyed somehow. And um, it all kind of fits in with the whole um, karma and the whole Indian cosmology, where you know nothing's really ever certain anyway. But when they did that, you know, we had, there was a young girl in India who really believed them when they adopted Shiva. And when they turned CERN on the first time, she committed suicide. Um, so the, the things that they say, whether they're tongue-in-cheek or not, have real-world implications for real people, you know, whether they know it or not. So these guys are, you know, they're probably mostly secularists and atheists, and, and they think this stuff is funny. But it's not necessarily funny. Um, you know, Shiva is a real deity to Hindus. And, and this girl killed herself when, when, when CERN went online over that because they, she really thought that it was going to mark the, the end of the world. And, um, you know, I, I really feel uh, a lot of compassion for that. But, you know, who is Shiva? Um, Shiva is this destroyer deity, you know, with, with all these arms and, you know, looks, it's the one, what does she have? Six arms or? Forearms? I can't remember. She has Six, several I think. arms. <laughs> she Just some extra arms there anyway. But if you look at the statue in front of CERN, she was doing like this cosmic dance. And they put this plaque on there about the cosmic dance of creation and recreation. And this is because a lot of the scientists now want to get away from the implications of Big Bang cosmology because Big Bang cosmology tells us that the universe had a beginning. right? And, you know, bangs need bangers. And, you know, things that begin... Need, need a creator. You know, nothing begins on its own. Something always puts it in motion. And they know that. And they don't like that because that has theistic implications. So what they really want to do is, is, is jump on board with this uh, cyclical cycle of creation. So there's all kinds of theories now where um, the universe uh, popped into being at the Big Bang, and then it'll be destroyed, and then it'll just cycle again, and it'll be another Big Bang. And so, there's models in cosmology now where that's the case. So that's why I think they really adopted Shiva. But we know, you know, as as Christians, as people who study uh, the supernatural, that these deities like Shiva have some kind of real component to them, and you know, Paul, when he was talking to the Corinthians, he was warning them about um, participating uh, uh, in idolatry and in um, pagan worship. And, you know, I'm just going to paraphrase the verse, because I'm just doing it straight from memory. He says, You know, I tell you the things the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. This is what Paul is telling the Corinthians, and that, that's just from my own memory of it. But... You know what does that tell me? It tells me that even though these are idols they 're not necessarily real, there are demonic uh, immortal entities that will more you know that are very happy to assume the identity of this idol and make it real for you and I think that happens over and over again in these false religions you know in Hinduism, they have thirty million gods, okay, thirty million now are there that many demons for each god i, I don 't necessarily think that 's the case. I suspect that there might be demons who will impersonate you know, several of these characters. Um, you know, they might just kind of assume whatever role is convenient at the time. I think they're opportunists. Now, I don't think there's necessarily a demonic entity for each of the 30 million gods in Hinduism, but I think maybe one of them might be a 100 of those gods. There might be one demon who assumes all kinds of identities, just depending on what's convenient at the time. So I think that there is a demon that uh, is behind the god Shiva. So whether the guys at CERN know it or not, they put a demon in front of their building and they dedicated it to it. All right. So, (laughs) you know, then they start making comments about, you know, we might open a portal and something might come through, you know, whether they're being tongue in cheek or not people take this seriously because we do believe that there's a demon behind Shiva. And we do believe that a portal is going to open and all these, you know, locust scorpion tailed beans are going to fly out at the fifth jump trumpet. Yeah, this is in our worldview. And we, we think that these things will, will probably really happen. So, The kind of things that they're saying aren't just tongue in cheek, you know. They do have real world implications, you know. And you know, I think for that reason, they're being irresponsible in the way they're joking around about that stuff.
0: Right? Wasn't uh, today the day that they pump up the juice over there at
1: San? Yeah, I just saw an article today. They're taking it up to an energy level they've never been to before. Right. And they're going to they're going to smack some stuff into each other and see what happens. And maybe they will create. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, you know, this stuff is so small. Like I say, we're dealing with microscopic things. You know, how could this create a portal that would really affect, you know, our reality? You know, that's where a lot of you know, I would call it the argument from incredulity. You know, this just, just doesn't even seem feasible to be anything I should worry about. Well, you know, they're, the scientists are the ones saying that maybe you should worry about it. They've said things like, you know, we could open a black hole and suck our, you know, our whole galaxy into it. They've, they've made those statements. Right. So I'm not really afraid of CERN, but, you know, I think that they're playing around with stuff they don't necessarily know what they're doing. And I don't really, I don't find their humor all that humorous. In fact, you know, in light of people committing suicide and and the fact that they really are putting demonic uh, entities out in front of the building, and, and, you know, it's not just a big joke. Now, the thing that's interesting about portals and, and science and wormholes and all that is that if you study the astrophysicists who really are looking at how could we make a traversable wormhole where we could fly a spaceship from one part of the galaxy to the other? Well, the only like the main scientist that dealing with that question right now is named Kip Thorne, and he was the um, advisor for the movie Interstellar. Now, Doctor Thorne will tell you if you're going to try to make a traversable wormhole, you have to start at the quantum level. All right. So the work they're doing at CERN really does affect how you would make a portal to another part of the universe because you have, the only way to do it is you'd have to make a really small wormhole, okay? Um, by, by tearing space time, like I said, and then stretch it up to the size of the astrophysics level. <laughs> and so they really are related in that way. Um, and Kip Thorne and all the scientists who really look at wormholes would, would, would say that. that's where I got that idea from. So that, That is absolutely the case. Uh, The work they're doing at CERN is intimately related uh, to any sort of wormhole uh, navigation that will ever occur, if it if it does, um, through a scientific means.
3: So, but you know, one of the questions that we always try to ask with anyone concerning the topic of CERN is like, what's what's kind of the stated purpose? I I mean, you know, at at a certain point, it's like we're you know they spent close to eight billion dollars to build the thing there mm-hmm. you know it's it's kind of like okay yeah we're trying to understand the fabric of reality is it just a natural progression of uh, material sciences and where it's headed in terms of some of the things you've talked about with the supernatural worldview i mean do you think there's going to be a shift in the scientific paradigm through something like cern
1: yeah you know, i don't know if, if cern will be the impetus for it i think it's already occurring um i think materialism is basically dying um, due to the weight of the evidence. Um, and the reason I say that, you know, it's things that, like I mentioned earlier, the observer problem, um, you know, when they look at particles like a photon and they put it through like the two slit, the three slit experiment. And you know, is it a wave? Well, you know, if you, if you don't observe it, and it goes through, it looks like a wave. It creates an interference pattern on the wall behind it. But if you look at it as a particle, it only goes through one slit. So which one is true? Well, it seems to be that both are true. It's a wave. It goes through all three slits, and it is a particle. It only went through one. But that, that's a contradiction. Well, that tells us that we don't really understand what's going on, because you know contradictions aren't true. You know it, it can't be both. But somehow it seems to be well that, that, that the problem is is that it seems to us that way because we don't understand what's going on. And that's why they postulated all these extra dimensions and things of that nature. They're trying to explain this stuff. Um, you know, the whole deal with Schrödinger's cat, you know, is the cat alive or is the cat dead? Well, it's in a superposition where it's both alive and dead. Well, we know that can't really be true, but it seems to be the case until you open the box. So something about the observer, you know, the fact that we look at the cat will determine whether it's alive or dead with Schrödinger's cat, or the fact that we look at the particle will determine whether it's a wave, or, if, you know, it, this, this, these are are fundamental um, problems that they don't really grasp, and so the 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 the, the level of um, understanding na- that's necessary seems to escape us. And I think that we are dealing with something that's that's outside of our capabilities at the moment. Um, I think I think God might be kind of having a chuckle <laughs> that they're calling the Higgs boson the God particle, right? Um, you know <laughs> and I think that's probably blasphemous in, in, on a number of levels, but. Um, You know the fact that they've built this huge facility—it's almost like rebuilding the Tower of Babel in a way. You know, and I think that's a very apt analogy. You know, mankind has reached its peak of technology. We've come together where we all speak the same language. We're all connected on the internet. We've really undone what God did when he dispersed the nations of the Tower of Babel. And now we're all going to come together and build this huge machine, the most you know, expensive, powerful machine ever built, and we're going to find the God particle. It really sounds like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Then and you we'll take know, a wormhole
0: to heaven.
1: <laughs> so, you know, on one end of the spectrum... I'm all for it. You know, I think it's great that we're doing science. We're trying to discover the the fundamental building blocks of reality. You know, I like that. I find I'm very interested in that. I think that, you know, science is a worthwhile endeavor. Yet, at the same time, I'm very concerned because the scientists that are doing it don't have any respect for what they're dealing with because they're atheists, a lot of them, you know, most of them are, And, and they don't. Um, think that there are any implications to a lot of the things that they say and do um, that are blasphemous, that are demonic, um, that result in people committing suicide and whatnot. And, and this is this cavalier attitude of, you know, we're the epitome of creation. You know, our our scientific minds, you know, our trained mathematical geniuses that are working at CERN, you know, they know better than the rest of us, and we're just a bunch of primitive, superstitious supernaturalists and you know that and they just assume that naturalism is true um and and they're wrong and the fact is when i say materialism is dying you know i think they know that because there are scientists you know when 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 in Copenhagen, and when they first started discovering all the stuff about, you know, particle wave duality and, and, and things of that nature, uh, people killed themselves. I mean, some of the scientists actually committed suicide because they couldn't make sense of this stuff. And because when you when you look at a materialist worldview, it doesn't make any sense how that could possibly be. But when you start looking at you know things of a spiritual nature, some of the stuff really does start to make sense, and and you start to see that you know we're dealing with. The, the science of the miraculous and it's not going to make sense given naturalism it's not going to make sense giving the materialist paradigm which says everything is of matter well they know that's not the case everyone's heard the thing you know you bang on the table and you say this is mostly empty space right well, that's true that really is true There's, it's not really a solid table at all it is mostly empty space and the solidness is really like an electrical simulation. It's it's really, you know, our it's electrical forces that seem to be, you know, repelling each other, and it's not really solid. So, you know, a lot of what we assume is reality is really kind of a simulation. It's not really what we think it is. And so this idea that materialism is an exhaustive explanation for the universe is starting to become laughable to me. I mean, I don't understand how anyone can really accept it. You know, there's something to... Uh, everything in reality—that's more than it seems. But when you start dealing with humans and human consciousness and our souls, um, it's obviously not true. You know, we're obviously not just matter in motion. We have things like intention. The fact that you can think something and then make it happen in the real world tells me the materialism is false, because you know, matter doesn't have ideas. Matter doesn't have intention. You know, if 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 we were just matter in motion, then what we call a philosophy, determinism would be true. Everything would be determined by the laws of physics, and, it, and your intent wouldn't have a thing to do with it. You wouldn't have any intention. It, that would just be an illusion. And if you read some of the prominent atheists, that is actually what they believe. They think that everything is determined. And you know it kind of blows my mind that somebody like Richard Dawkins has a worldview that it amounts to determinism. Yeah, he still thinks that it's a good idea to write a book to try to convince me that my worldview is wrong. But, you know, if determinism is true, he can't convince me of anything. He can't change my mind. It's all determinism. You know, it's just like water flowing out the end of a pipe. You know, there's nothing you can do to change it. It's all determined. And so... The whole worldview behind the project of CERN is wrong. It's fundamentally flawed. It's fundamentally deterministic. It's fundamentally materialism. And so they have the wrong worldview, and that makes them dangerous in a lot of ways that you know we've already discussed. And that's what concerns me the most, is that we have people that are doing this stuff. They don't have any respect for what they're really doing.
2: Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Lay down the hammer. Yeah, I
0: was going to say. <laughs> That was some serious business there mister um no, but absolutely and i and i th- that was a very well articulated way to put it it's It's actually a lot more intense than a lot of people know um so we're on the path of the immortals still <laughs> did you we- find them? <laughs> Did you find the Immortals? (laughs) That's a
1: good question. Yeah, did you find the Immortals? Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, Were those orbs that we took pictures of out in Sedona Immortals? Maybe. I I don't know. Um, They're definitely weird. And and it's definitely, I wasn't expecting to get that stuff the way I did on film. Yeah, I don't know if I found them or not, but maybe. Um, I think that, we definitely got on their path, you know, which was our goal anyway. Um, and I think that we trace that path, you know, like I said, through a Mesa America with these fallen, uh, Seraphim, uh, I think we traced that path, you know, through a lot of the false religious ideas that we see in the new age movement, um, that these are spiritual influences that are driving this stuff. You know, the, the Bible tells us that our battles, not against flesh and blood, but against, you know, what, you know, the spirits and, and, and and so I think that's, that was really the trajectory, and I think we did, you know, get on their path and show how they really have been influencing this world, you know, in the indigenous tribes in America and all over uh, for a long time, and how, you know, we think that's going to play out in biblical prophecy, you know, in this great deception, and then in God using them as part of the judgment against the fallen world. So... In that sense, yeah, yeah, I think we we did get on their path and and we did kind of show the trajectory there
3: right and, and I think there's a, a a healthy if I can use that word overlap with some of the previous work you and Tom have done with um you know the the uh, Petrus Romanus and exo Vaticana with um you know I know you posted a, a link to an article uh, a day or so ago um suggesting uh, one person suggesting that uh, Pope Francis is going to announce, you know, ET reality in, uh, you know, in what the next week or something. Which, June 15th. If that, yeah, if that happens, uh, yeah, well, that'd that be interesting.
1: Be, that happens to be my birthday, um, which I found a little troubling. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a there's an article on the internet now, and I I kind of reposted about it on my website. Uh, I think I did it on Supernatural Worldview, but my other website is LogosApologia.org. I'm sure you guys will link to those for yeah. me. But um, the uh, yeah, there's an attorney named Daniel Sheehan, kind of white curly-haired guy, and I quoted him in exo vaticana because he's he's a rather famous attorney. He's tried some really high-profile cases, and he's well known. He's also well known in the UFO community because he's kind of at the at the cutting edge of what they call the disclosure movement. He really does believe that there are intelligent extraterrestrials influencing the Earth. And I would question some of his beliefs there, but he's also into this real New Age spirituality and whatnot, and so that that always kind of throws up a lot of red flags for me, too, but he is a serious attorney, he's a serious person, he he does have a, a prominent career, and he was the lead counsel for the Jesuit order in the United States, so he has you know, definite inside connections to the Vatican and the Jesuit order in particular, Uh, Pope Francis being the first Jesuit Pope, it could be quite significant. Um, He spoke at this uh, UFO conference in California. It was called Contact in the Desert. I believe that was just like last weekend. Um, When he spoke, he said that uh, on June 15th, Pope Francis is going to announce that they're preparing the way for the arrival of some kind of, you know, super intelligent, extraterrestrial. Right. Now, I, I don't know what to make of that. Does she know what he's talking about, or is he just, you know, blowing smoke to attract attention to himself? I, you know, I don't know. It could be either way. It could be kind of in the middle of that. You know, I suspect that, you know, I've seen uh, the VORG astronomers, the Vatican Observatory Research Group, Acronym Vorg uh, go out and several of them, you know, have been making comments about baptizing extraterrestrials. Pope Francis last year mentioned that he would baptize an extraterrestrial. He was the first pope to ever say it, but they've been saying it since 1993, as far as I can tell. When I traced that back, in ex Vaticana the first astronomer was George Coyne, who was then the leader of the Vorg. Um, he said that. They were teaming up with NASA to find ETs and see if they would baptize them in the Catholic Church that was way back in 9'3 when um, the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope first went online on Mount Graham now uh, in case some of the listeners don't know the reason why this connects exo Vaticana is that you know we discovered that the indigenous tribes view Mount Graham where the Vatican has this observatory as a portal area and right. so this kind of opens up a whole new um, rationale for why they might be up there. Maybe it's more than just a good place to look at the stars. <laughs> and, you know, the, the the Indians seem to think that it's a portal. And, you know, they're very concerned about them being up there. So, right. you know, what about Sedona? Well, you know, interesting to me is that uh, all around Sedona, on these red rock formations, the uh, New Agers uh, call these energy vortexes. And when they say energy vortex, they mean something along the lines of spiritual energy, uh, what the Chinese call qi energy, you know. Um, it, like in China, and with qi, you have like feng shui on one end, which is the arrangement of your furniture and your architecture and where you put your house on the land uh, to direct qi energy, okay? Well, in the... In a personal way, acupuncture is the way that you direct qi energy inside a person. So the Chinese have this belief. Um, you know, in, uh, in in some of the New Age literature, some of the occult literature, you see things like ley lines that uh, they think are channels of this earth energy. It's the same sort of thing. Well, um, in Sedona, there was a psychic medium named Paige Bryant. In 1981, she channeled a being called Albion, who I would probably identify as a demonic entity, uh, who claimed, you know, to be this spiritual master, blah blah blah. But he had Paige Bryant identify these vortex areas all around Sedona, and a vortex is just kind of a fancy word for a, you know, spiral energy thing, like water going down the drain or you know, a tornado time. or whatnot. Well, so they had these spiritual vortex areas where they go to meditate. And these are all these red rock formations, Bell Rock being one, uh, Airport Mesa being another. And I've visited these areas, and i got some film footage of them and talked about them. But interesting enough to me, the Catholic Church seems to have been aware of this Uh, Before the New Age movement ever got started and before she ever identified them. Because right, one of the main vortex areas now is the Chapel of the Holy Cross. And it's built into the side of the mountain uh, up there in Sedona, overlooking the city. You see this Catholic chapel. It was built in the early, in the 1950s called the Chapel of the Holy Cross. And all the New Agers say that's the best place for soul protection. What do they mean by that? Well, you, you go up there and you sit. Next to the chapel, or in it, and you, you know you do your little lotus position and you you go within and you can project your soul all across to any of the other vortex sites in savannah and there 's instructions for how to do that if you want to you know delve into the new age literature and I looked at that, and I talk about it in the book. Um, but it, you know, it's really interesting to me that the Catholic Church seems to be one step ahead of the New Age movement, building their little chapel up on the red rocks. And see, this again, just like at Mount Graham, they had to bypass you know a lot of the the, the typical environmental regulations and whatnot. They, they wouldn't allow you to build a Baptist church on the red rock formations of Sedona, would they? Now, how right. does, why does the Vatican get such special special privileges? Why is it that Senator John McCain went around the National Forestry Service and the approval process of the united states congress to, to rubber stamp the vatican building an observatory on top of mount graham bypassing every single environmental regulation and every forestry service uh, process they just rubber stamped it bam go ahead build it no no oversight whatsoever uh, and this is this is unheard of you know that you can just go build a facility in a national park without any oversight but Somehow the Vatican's able to do that, uh, you know, over and over again. Uh, you know, I don't know how they they do that, but I suspect they have high-ranking Catholics, you know, involved in the process who just kind of push that through.
3: Now, do you think there's actual positive sort of uh, benefits to some of that stuff? I mean, I know it's kind of a to the Christian, it's kind of like no, you know, there's no, it's all demonic, it's all evil. Uh, but in terms of like the natural sort of the way God intended creation to be sort of thing. Do you think there's any kind of nuggets of truth in there that have been, you know, manipulated I, and changed?
1: I suspect, uh, yeah, I suspect there is. Um, you know, I think that, you know, things like meditation and mindfulness, there probably is a positive benefit to it, especially the idea of mindfulness. If, if you look at what it's really supposed to be, you're just making yourself aware of your own thoughts. And yeah, you know, I think that you could, look at what paul says take every thought captive well isn't that mindfulness i think it is but you know what paul's talking about is you know be aware of of your thoughts and you know this is anybody who is a christian uh that should be aware of this and they should be able to identify with what i'm saying if you're a christian and you're in this process we call sanctification that means you're struggling with sin that means you're struggling with desires that you have that you don't want to actually do. Now, if you're like me, that happens fairly frequently, and that means that when that thought pops in your mind, you have a choice. Do I capture this thought and push it out of my mind, or do I roll around and play with it and think about how good it might feel or whatever if I commit this sin? Well, what Paul's saying is you capture that thought and you push it out of your mind, because if you roll around with it long enough, you're going to do it. You know, if you go, if you sit in the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut, right. that kind of thinking. So if you allow these thoughts to, to roll around in your mind long enough, you're going to act on it. Okay. And this could be lust. It could be greed. It could be, you know, any kind of, uh, sinful inclination that all of us struggle with as human beings. And, and Christians are not, you know, we don't get a free pass on, on this struggle. We all have to struggle. So this is, you know, this is, I think, is the idea behind mindfulness is a similar sort of thing in that you're becoming aware of your own thinking and you're capturing it and you're, and you're dealing with it. Now, in mindfulness and Buddhist kind of things, it's a little different because they don't necessarily make a moral judgment about it and, and do anything about it. They just kind of, oh, there it is, let's observe it, you know, and I think that would be the difference. Uh, A lot of times they're talking about emptying yourself, clearing your mind, and the reason they're doing that is so they can discover the divinity within you. You know, they have this belief that we're all part of God, and we've all just gotten split off. It's this pantheistic oneism. You know, I talk a lot about oneism in my book, The Supernatural Worldview, this idea that all is one. It really is pantheism in that we are all God. We just got broken apart, and it really our challenge is just to discover that we are God. And once we do that, you know, we will, you know, achieve uh you know, the status of God basically will become a whole, one part of the whole, Nirvana or Atman is Brahman, you know, all these kind of Eastern ideas that are, you know, ubiquitous in the New Age literature as well. And probably the dominant spirituality in America now, whether people know it or not, is this oneist idea. The idea that all religions are basically praying to the same God. It's all connected to oneism. And you know, that's the problem, is is that they really think that they're part of God or God is within them. And we don't believe that. You know, we believe that God is external to us. We believe in two-ism. You know, there's two separate things. Apostle Paul says in Romans 125, you know, that they... You know, they they, they they worship created things rather than the creator, you know, and, that, and that's the problem is people don't make that distinction. We are created things. We are not the creator. The creator is not, you know, within your consciousness, and if you just kind of clear your mind enough, you'll discover that you're God. That That's the message of the new age. That's the message of, you know, Buddhist meditation, uh, of Hinduism, um, and that's where the distinction lies, and that's where the danger is with this practice. Is we don't want to empty our minds. We want to fill our minds with the Word of God, with the things of God, with holiness.
2: You know, we want
1: to capture those thoughts and push those sinful inclinations out and replace them with, you know, God's will for us. And, you know, that's a challenge. But, you know, if you're not doing it, you're probably sliding backwards because nobody really coasts uphill, and the Christian life is an uphill struggle.
0: Amen, brother. I think that's a a great way to, to land the plane here. That's awesome. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> Sounds well, good to me.
0: Yeah. Well, so, I mean, was there was there any last uh, words that you wanted to add on to that for the, the folks at home? Well,
1: I think that, yeah, that, is, that is a good place to end, you know, and, you know, just to, to be real clear, you know, we are Christians, and Tom, you know, is, a, is a, a pastor for 25 years before he started this enterprise that he's in now, and, you know, I... I um, came to Christianity later in life, so I might be struggling a little more than <laughs> some of the others. But um, <laughs> you know, it is an uphill battle, and you know we're we're called to to come together and to and to do these things. And you know, I, I take this uh, this 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 calling seriously. You know, I, I'm trying to to handle this information with integrity, and you know, I think it's important that. Uh, that we do pay attention. You know, I don't know when Jesus is going to return. I don't know when the end times are, but I suspect that it could be soon. And, you know, I think there are good reasons to, to believe that, and that's what we write about. And, you know, I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but look at what's going on in the world. And it is kind of alarming. And you know, if, if you don't find it alarming, I don't know why you don't, because I do. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh you know, Keep, keep keep looking up, because your redemption is near.
2: Amen. <laughs> Boom.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. Chris, thanks again for coming on the show, buddy. You're always Absolutely. welcome. My,
1: my pleasure. My pleasure. Hopefully we'll, we'll get to cross paths again soon.
0: Absolutely. So why don't you tell us uh, about your book and where to find it and where to buy it and look at all your stuff again.
1: Certainly. So my websites are www.supernaturalworldview.com and then Logos Apologia is the other one. And I don't know what I was thinking when I named it that, because I, I wasn't really thinking about people being able to remember it really well, but it's L O G O S A P O L O G I A dot org. It's really two Greek words, Logos and Apologia, so it's like logic or the word, and defense is Apologia, so that, that's where it came from. But those are the two websites. And then the book is available on Amazon, of course. Um right now, it's, it's, the book is so new that they won't allow me to list it on Amazon personally through my Amazon store, but I'm going to be offering some signed copies of the book through my Amazon store as soon as they'll let me list it. And, um, of course, it's available at survivalmall.com, which is Tom's website. And I think he has some kind of special running, too. And, of course, you know, it's at Barnes & and Noble, a lot of the standard bookstores as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a privilege to have it out there and available for everybody in, in so many different outlets. And, uh, you know, it should be pretty easy to get a copy. But if you want to find one, you can do that through me.
0: All right, so there you have it, folks. Our good friend, friend of the show, Chris Putnam with his new thing. Hope you liked it. A lot of stuff packed in there. A lot of ancient serpent talk, you know?
3: Yeah. Native yep. American portals.
0: Native American portals.
3: Oh, and something I forgot to mention and I didn't have a chance really, but the whole idea of Sedona, you know, is uh very right. similar to Sidonia, which has ties Ooh. with Mars and Whoa. and you know how it's red out there. So, you know, there's some interesting right. ties with that. Which David They're Flynn pointed just, out has a connection with the dog star Sirius, you know, so oh, it, serious. Gets, it gets totally
0: serious, bro. That is some serious <laughs> business. Um, yeah, so there you go. Anyways, hope everybody liked it. Make sure to go to our Facebook page, become my friend, Basil, Gons Friends, Gons, and Canary Cry Radio. Also, we got our Twitter, Canary Cry Radio, Instagram, Canary Cry Radio. If you'd like to help Canary Cry Radio continue the mission of spreading the word, you can go to canarycryradio.com and there's a support tab there. And there, you can sign up to do a monthly gift subscription. It's great, automatic, perfect for your laid-back bachelor lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> but if commitment's not your thing, you can make a one-time gift in any amount. We appreciate that so much. You guys are um, keeping uh, cat food in our cat's bellies. Gons recently got uh, a- attacked by bats. He was he was in a field, and he, he thought it was a butterfly, but it turned out it, it was a bat. Yeah, it a, was
3: an MK Ultra situation, you know. And he got that?
0: attacked. He didn't get hurt. He's not hurt. He just is really emotionally scarred. So we need to buy him the, we need to buy him a box set of, uh, of friends, <laughs> friends, the the box set, so, so we the, can help the, him the out. The TV
3: show, so I can watch. Um, yes.
0: Yeah, so if you want to help Gon's out with that, or help me feed my cat, you can go ahead and. Go to the support tab. Which, which by the
3: way, the cat does make an appearance in the episode, by the way. I think it might be its debut.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Many of you noticed in the middle of the episode, there was um, a large crashing sound. That was the cat pouncing on my headset, thinking that it was a creature attacking me. And he was just trying to help. But but it, it, it did cause a little bit of a ruckus. But Chris
3: was good. He (laughs) just—I was going to
0: say—I don't even know if Chris noticed. Yeah, he was just like—he just went right through it. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. Also, one last thing is go to iTunes, everybody. Go to iTunes and leave us a a rating and a review. Not a lot of you have been doing that lately. I'm a little bit sad about that. You know, we had the memorial. Sad we had the memorial day episode we put a lot of work into it gone spent eighty thousand hours editing it <laughs> we, we 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 did it we did it and we haven't gotten any itunes reviews or ratings or anything well, that, that's
3: that's no, no, normally how <laughs> it works <laughs> it's okay basil every time we have an episode that like i spend you know like hours upon hours and, you know, just like way too much effort into one episode, and it comes out, and it's like crickets. Yep. And, then, yeah. and, then, and then, you know, you'll get your occasional six months down the line, you know, like, oh, I love that episode. And it's like, ah, oh,
0: payoff. This outro is really just becoming a gripe session here. Yeah,
3: we're just bitter about our lives.
0: <laughs> did you see Chappie?
3: I did see Chappie, yeah. What
0: did you think about it? Do you want to do a review of Chappie right now?
3: (laughs) Just right now?
0: (laughs) Um, I I didn't see it. I want to see it.
3: Yeah, I I actually was going to do like a full YouTube video review of it, but I just haven't gotten around to it because I didn't think it was really... It wasn't that deep, number one. Um, It's kind of like a remake of Short Circuit, but in sort of a modern perspective. Right. And basically what I felt like it was, it was the, the main topic at play here was not artificial intelligence per se. It was mind uploading into Mm -hmm. machines and the, um, what transcendence did in sort of a psychological thriller kind of way. Chappie did in the more action packed, you know, action movie sequence kind of way. And, um, it kind of plays on a couple of themes with the creator of Chappie sort of playing the God figure, you know, giving him some rules, you know, to whatever. And then Chappie tries to follow the rules, but the other, uh, you know, criminals that they're hanging out with, you know, forces him to, cause they want him to go to war and all this stuff. And eventually he breaks those rules and he's kind of a, you know, killer robot kind of guy, but he's trying to defend his own sort of uh, robot humanity or whatever And uh, I I would say it was just kind of propaganda for that sort of thinking. Um, There's a scene where Chappie's arm gets ripped off by the uh, uh, Hugh, what's his name? Hugh Grant. No, not Hugh Grant. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Hugh (laughs) Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. No, not Hugh Grant. The Hugh Jackman (laughs) character, you know, rips out Chappie's arm. And it's like this horrific imagery. And it's, you know, it, it tugs at your humanness. You know, like, oh my gosh, they're hurting him and i had to even catch myself like oh my gosh that's so sad and terrible but then it's like wait a minute but that's a robot that's a machine it's not really
0: you can't feel robot
3: yeah but at the same time that's what they're trying to implant into the minds of the people you know it's like oh what is it to be human or conscious as uh,
0: shappy was dying did he did he slowly go i was just learning to
3: love no not quite but Oh. They his his body was going to run out of batteries, so they had to transfer him over to a new body and they do that successfully. And his creator guy also was dying and they trans and they did this whole, you know, trans uh, modify whatever, trans mind, whatever, into an, a robot body. So the the human lives by transferring his consciousness into the same kind of robot machine body. And then well, now
0: I don't have to see the movie. No, you don't.
3: You don't really don't. It's it's really neither not does that anybody. Good. No, no, don't go see it. It's really not that good. And then uh what's that that lady, that chick name, Antwood, something or other?
0: Die Antwood.
3: Die Antword, yeah. So she's I don't in the know movie. Her
0: name, but she's
3: She the... yeah, she kind of plays like the motherly figure of Chappie, and then she gets shot and it's this whole sad scene. But Chappie was so smart because he figured out how to keep the data of his quote unquote mommy on some like flash drive or something. <laughs> so they I get the flash drive to some uh some, some facility at the end and and uh the Di Antwood character, the motherly figure, wakes up in a robot machine and that's how the movie ends. So, so it's like
0: everybody becomes robots? Yeah.
3: <laughs> the
0: whole thing is just everybody becoming robots. Yeah.
3: So I'm telling you, it's just propaganda for that whole idea of like yeah, we're going to, you know, upload our minds into machines and we're going to live forever. And it's like, uh, you know,
2: sounds good to me. Same
3: kind of nonsense that, uh, and this comes, you know, and just, I'm posting a video about this today, which if you're listening to this, you know, whenever it's probably been days or whatever, but there was a Christian post article that published an article that said, you know, why Christians should embrace transhumanism. And, uh, I kind of threw up in my mouth reading it.
0: That's gross.
3: Yeah, it, it it was bad.
0: Did a little bit come out onto your computer?
3: Hey, pretty much. I'm am j- just recording my video. Is just me. Just.
0: just <laughs> <bleh>. <laughs> hey everybody, I'm just uh, I'm doing a video on this article called uh, "Should Christians uh, be, be in
3: a- <laughs> That is so highly inappropriate, Basil.
0: Are we still? Is this like recording to be on a thing, or I are have we just no talking? Idea. <laughs> okay. Right,
3: I think we should wrap it up before right. we get ourselves ah, into trouble. I've been
0: getting dressed the whole time we hey, talking about Chappie.
3: Dressed. Interesting. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Just so you know, talking about getting in trouble. This our next episode might get us in trouble. So just stay tuned.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye.
3: You're gonna do a, are you gonna do a real outro or are you gonna I get
0: out of here I'm just trying to leave did I thought I did a real outro
3: okay you gonna use that
0: oh no I'll do this so there you have it folks thanks for listening to this episode of Canary cry radio bo bloop, bloop make sure to tune in next time but until you do think outside that cage. yeah 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 <laughs> All right, I gotta go. All right. All right, talk to you later. Yeah, bye. Bye.